0: no one like Jesus? Amen. Amen. There is no one like Jesus. This morning we're going to continue walking through our sermon series, Miracles and Parables. And over the past several weeks we've been walking through these together. We have looked at how Jesus has demonstrated his authority over disease, over weather, over demons, over sin, over salvation, and over death. Jesus demonstrated his authority over these, and there would come a day soon when Jesus will demonstrate his ultimate authority over death. He will go to the cross, and he will take his final breath upon the cross, and he will die for all a man's sins. He will be declared dead by all in proximity of him. There would be no doubt about his death. He will be declared dead. His, his heart had stopped beating and his lifeblood had stopped flowing. He was placed in that tomb. And three days later, what happened? Jesus conquered death because no grave can contain him. In the Christ-centered exposition commentary, we read these words. It says, the one who has authority over disease, natural disasters, and demons, and the one who severed the root of all suffering with his authority over sin has authority over death itself. This authority will ultimately be shown when Jesus dies on the cross. And make no mistake. As a one with power over death, Jesus really did die and was placed in the tomb. His heart flatlined, and for three days before he walked out of that tomb on his own authority, death does not have the last word. Jesus does. The Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy once said, When I looked at religion, I had just two questions. Question number one. Has anybody ever conquered death. And question number two, if they have, did they provide a way for me to do the same? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Jesus Christ, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And then I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it as well. And I opened up the Bible and I read because I live you shall live also." also. Death is a reality. Every single one of us in this room will one day take our final breath on this side of eternity. For the believer in Christ Jesus, who has repented of their sins and cried out to Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life, they have the guaranteed promise that they will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. For the unbeliever, the one who has chosen to reject Jesus, they have an equal promise that they will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. This morning, we're going to continue to walk through Jesus's healing ministry in Matthew chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading together in verse 27. We'll be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 9, verses 27-27 thirty four, Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. And we read this. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. You know, we serve a God where all things are possible. You know that, right? Nothing is impossible with God. That is our message point this morning. Nothing is impossible with God. One of my favorite um Christian movies is the movie called Facing the Giants. And I love that movie because every single one of us in this room, on a daily basis, we face giants in our lives, don't we? This is a movie about uh, um, a terrible football team. When the movie begins, that once they get their lives right with Christ, they end up winning the state championship. So that is one... focal point of this movie there's another focal point where there is a wife and a husband unable to have children and the husband happens to be the head football coach of the football team and then there's another focus of this movie where there is a a man that walks through the hallways every single week and touches every single locker and prays for revival and revival comes in that movie on that school campus. The lost gets saved. Families are reconciled. And this terrible team ends up winning the state championship. And not only that, but this husband and wife who are unable to have children, they are able to have children. And at the end of the movie, the wife asks the husband, she goes, um, tell me what is impossible with God? And he says, nothing. Nothing is impossible with our God. And as we have been walking through these miracles, we have seen over and over and over the Lord Jesus Christ do the impossible, haven't we? Notice point number one this morning. It is this. Jesus's authority over blindness. Jesus's authority over blindness. Blindness was common in ancient times, as it still is in underdeveloped countries today. The fact that Jesus healed more people with blindness than any other healing tells us something about the nature of blindness. As I was reading one commentary, the, the commentator says that there are many different reasons for people having blindness, and some of those um, occurred because of unsanitary conditions. Others of those occurred because of infectious organisms that got into people's eyes. Um, the The, the Sand that was part of that deserty environment could get into a person's eyes and cause them to go blind, as well as accidents that occurred during war and malnutrition. Several different reasons for people to have gone blind during that period of time. Regardless of how these two men got blind, what we know in Scripture is that that blindness, according to Scripture, number one is this: it is a picture of spiritual ignorance. Blindness is a picture of spiritual ignorance. We read in Matthew 15, 14, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So it's a picture of spiritual ignorance. It is also a picture of lostness. In John 3, 3, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God and then it is also a picture of an unfruitful believer in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 we read this it says for this very reason Or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so near sight that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So so blindness is also a picture of spiritual unfruitfulness. As believers in Jesus Christ, all of us have been called to bear fruit, haven't we? We have been called to bear fruit. We have been called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have been called to be actively growing and studying and taking God's word and applying it to our lives. And if we fail to do this, then we are like we were before we ever became Christ followers, in the sense that we are like, it is likened unto us as being blind. Now, we are still believers in Jesus Christ. We are just unfruitful believers in Jesus Christ. Notice the qualities of these blind men. The first thing, notice the cry of these men. Notice the cry of these men. In verse 27 we read, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on on us, son of David. These men cry out loudly, saying, Have mercy on us, son of God. Notice the persistence of these men. These men most likely did not just cry out once, but they cried out over and over and over and over, trying to get the attention of Jesus. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. These men say that over and over over and over. But notice what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not stop and respond to these men and heal them immediately as he has had a history of doing throughout these miracles that we have walked through over the course of this sermon series, why did Jesus not heal these men immediately, but healed these other men relatively or women relatively immediately? It could be that Jesus was testing these men's faith. It could be that Jesus wanted to make sure that he was not some ju- just some novelty act to these men. Let me ask you a question this morning. When it comes to persistence, how persistent are you as you pursue your relationship with Jesus Christ how persistent are you and i when we pray for those that we know need prayer or those that request prayer from us. I think we sometimes treat Jesus like he is some kind of novelty act. We treat him like he is just a genie in a bottle that we can summon on our behalf and at our request whenever we want. Folks, Jesus is not a novelty. He does not work for you, nor does he work for me. You know, I read a quote this week. That's probably one of the most surprising quotes that I've ever um, read from a spiritual leader, Pope Francis. This week, some of you may have read this. He said this um, before one of uh, to, to one of his serv- at one of his services. He said, "Dear brothers and sisters, we are never alone. We can be far. We can be hostile. We can even say we are without God, but Jesus Christ." gospel reveals to us that God cannot be without us. He will never be a God without man. It is he who cannot be without us. This is a great mystery. God cannot be God without man. This is a great mystery. When I first read that statement, I was absolutely blown away. To say that God cannot be God without us is about as shocking of a statement as I've ever read. That one statement right there has the potential to lead hundreds of millions of people to hell. God preexisted man. Man did not create God. God created man. God does not need us. Thankfully, he created us to have a relationship with him. He pursues us as well as we should pursue him. These men that we have been looking at or that we are going to look at this morning recognize Jesus, not as some novelty act, but notice how they addressed Jesus. They addressed him as the son of God. The title that they give him is very significant. They say to him, have mercy on us, son of David. For the first time in Matthew's gospel, he writes of Jesus being the son of David outside of the genealogy. These men knew and recognized that Jesus was not just some novelty act. He was not just some man. He was the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God who has authority to heal them and forgive them if he so chooses. They recognized that he was the promised king who had come to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. These men had faith. And they were persistent in their cries for help. You and I likewise need to be people of persistence. We need to be persistent when we pray. We need to be persistent when we pursue people to share with them the good news of salvation. As I was preparing for this message, I came across... uh, uh, an article um, that had been written many years ago. And as I read this, it, it's an article about the need for revival. And as I read this, notice the similarities um, between the church of yesteryears and the our society as well as our college campuses. Let me share this with you. Dr. A.T. Patterson once said, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. Not many, Not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution, there was a moral slump. Drunkenness became an epidemic. Out of the population of 5,300,000 people were declared drunkards. 15,000 burials occurred every year because of that drunkenness. Profanity was the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for they feared that they would be assaulted. Daily bank robberies occurred. What about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said that they had their most wintry season. The Presbyterians in general assembly deplored the nation's ungodliness. And A typical congregation church, the Reverend Samuel Shepard said that in 16 years, he had not taken one young person into fellowship. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed joining with the Episcopalians. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York Bishop Samuel Provost quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided that he was out of work and began to look for employment elsewhere. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church was too far gone ever to be redeemed and said that Christianity will be forgotten in the next 30 years. Years. Take the liberal arts colleges at that time, a poll taking at Harvard had discovered not one believer in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical place, where they discovered only two believers in the student body, body and only five that had not belonged to the filthy speech movement of the day. Students rioted. They held a mock communion at Williams College and they put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. They burned down the Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of a local Presbyterian church in New Jersey and they burnt it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on campuses in the 1790s that they met in secret. How did the situation change? It came through a Through a concert of prayer, there was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh named John Erskine, who published a memorial, as he called it, pleading with the people of Scotland and elsewhere to unite in prayer for the revival of religion. He sent one copy of this little book to Jonathan Edwards in New England. The great theologian was so moved that he wrote a response which which grew longer than a letter so that he finally published a book. Prayer changes lives. Prayer changes churches. Prayer changes societies and college campuses. Prayer changes People. We read in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. When we cry out to Jesus, not only will we be changed, but those that we pray for and those that we pursue with the gospel of Jesus Christ, their lives have the potential to be changed as well. Notice our second subpoint here. Yes, I've spent a great deal of time on first subpoint. But please continue following along this morning. The next one is this. Notice the gentleness of Jesus. We read in verses 28 through 30. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, "Do you believe that I am able to do this?" They said to him, "Yes, Lord." Then he touched their eyes, saying, "According to your faith, be it done to you." And their eyes were open. So these men's persistence led them to follow Jesus into this house. Now, we don't know if anyone else followed Jesus into that house. We don't know how many other people were in that house, but un- unlike many of other many other of Jesus's miracles. This one was not a public miracle, but it was more of a private miracle, which will be significant as we get to our next point in just a moment. I think this is significant because Jesus wanted to make sure that these men truly understood who he was. He wanted to make sure that they were willing to follow him long after their blindness had been healed. So Jesus, seeing their faith, reaches out to them, touched their eyes, and immediately they could see. I mean, it just blows my mind when I think about that. Possibly the very first person these men ever gazed upon was the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? As I think about that, I think about the song, um, I can only imagine. I mean, when they gazed upon Jesus for the first time, did they hug his neck? Did they just fall over him and kiss him on his cheek? Did they fall down right there and worship him? We don't know what they did. But I can only imagine that there was a worship experience that happened in that room when those two men who once were blind could finally see. Not only were there, would their lives not be the same, but notice also their witness would never be the same either. And Jesus sternly warned them, So that no one, he said this, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and they spread his fame through all that district. These two verses to me are kind of confusing when I read them, trying to digest what they, what Jesus is actually saying. Why in the world would Jesus tell these two men to tell no one, to remain silent? Why would he do that? Folks, this miracle was not a public miracle, but the results of this miracle certainly were public because these two blind men that had potentially blind from birth, everyone in that community knew. Knew that they were blind, and so immediately when they went out of that home and they could see, there was no containing their blindness. So, why in the world did Jesus say to them, Tell no one? You know, we don't know why, but it could very well be that Jesus was tired. You know, it could very well be that this was later in the evening, um, just as Jesus, after he had healed the leper and after he had healed the centurion's service and servant, instructed the disciples to get the boat ready because they were going to go to the other side of the of the lake. It could very well be that Jesus was just tired and he wanted them to remain silent that evening so that his physical body, which we know God was one hundred percent human and he was one hundred percent. So his body could have been tired and he needed some sleep. He needed a reprieve from healing um, people. We don't know exactly what had happened. But what we do know is that, that these men went out and immediately began sharing the good news and spreading the name of Jesus Christ amongst those that they came in contact with contact with. That is what each and every one of us are called to do. We are all called to spread the name of Jesus amongst those that we come in contact with on a daily basis. The reason we sent a team to New York this past week is so that we could spread the name of Jesus amongst those that we come in contact with. The reason that we've got a team that is going to Ecuador in just a couple of weeks is so that we can spread the name of Jesus Christ amongst those that we come in contact with. The reason the week after next that we are doing vacation Bible school in This place, so that we can spread the name of Jesus Christ amongst those that we come in contact with. The reason that we go into this, across this city, across this county, across this state, across this nation, and across this world, is to spread the good news of salvation. All of us in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ have been commanded to go. We need to be obedient to the Great Commission and go. Notice our second. Point This morning. It is this. Jesus's authority over demons. We read in verses 32 through 34, it says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince Of demons. First, notice the condition of this man. Notice his condition. What we know about this man for sure is that he was mute. It's very possible that he also could have been blind or he could have been lame because what does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that he was brought to Jesus, he was unable to get there on his own. Regardless of what else was wrong with this man, this man was brought to Jesus for healing. Whoever brought him to Jesus recognized that Jesus had the authority to cast out whatever demon it was that this man um, was possessed with. Notice the 2nd subpoint is this, the healing of the man. In verse 33, The first part of that scripture says, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Do you notice the difference between this healing and every other healing that Jesus has done up until this point? For this man, we are not told of this man's faith. Not only are we not told that this man came to Jesus and was healed because of his faith, we are also not told that this man, after his healing, went out and began to proclaim the good news of salvation amongst those that he came in contact with. We don't know why that is. It could very well be that it was his faith that that led to Jesus healing him and that immediately he went out and proclaimed the name of Jesus. We do not know what it was. Jesus just healed him. That is what Jesus has the power to do. He has the power to destroy the works of the devil. The very thing that he sought out to do when he came to this earth, reaching all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we know this to be true. God declared that the works of the devil would be destroyed once and all through Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3, 5 we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, meaning Jesus will destroy Satan and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus cast that demon out of this man and this man began to speak. Potentially for the first time ever. And as a result of Jesus' healing ministry, notice the response of the crowd. In In verse 33, again, we read. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying never was anything like this seen in Israel. This crowd had witnessed Jesus perform countless miracles over the course of days or weeks or months. They had witnessed all of this and they were left in awe. Understand that all of us in this room and everyone outside of this room must respond to Jesus Christ. They must respond to his works here on earth, his works on the cross, his work as a result of defeating death. Every single person must respond to Jesus Christ. Everyone must decide whether or not they're going to believe in Jesus Christ or whether or not they are going to reject and deny and choose not to follow Jesus Christ. This past week, we had opportunities to speak to countless people while we were in New York. Some flat out rejected The gospel, flat out rejected us. Some were incredibly hateful towards us and spoke some incredibly inappropriate things when we tried to share the plan of salvation with them. Some, just to get us to leave them alone, would quickly say, I'm already a Christian. But some of the men and women that we met this past week were responsive to the gospel. They allowed us to sit down with them and to share with them the good news of salvation. While we were um, on on Wednesday, one of the ministries that we participated in was a ministry called the New York Relief Bus. And it's a homeless ministry where they feed um, hundreds of thousands of cups of soup every single year to the homeless around um, New York. And while we were there, I had the opportunity to meet a gentleman by the name of Lawrence. Lawrence was 60 years of age. He had been homeless since he was 44 years old. That's how old I am. I mean, it's like me today beginning as a homeless person as I was talking with him. I was just blown away. And he shared with me that, and I asked him, Point Blake, when you do street evangelism, you just ask people things, Point Blake, because most likely you're never going to see these people again. And so I asked Lawrence, I said, Lawrence, let me be, um, if you don't mind, let me be blunt with you and ask you a personal question. What's the longest period of time that you've ever gone without using drugs? And he said, well, w- besides a short term in prison, even then my girlfriend um, snuck drugs into me. It's been one week. One week of his life at a time is all that he has able, been able to um, go without abusing drugs. I asked him if he was a Christ follower. And he told me that whenever he was younger, he went to church every, every week with his mom. And I said, I said Lawrence, understand this. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. When we become a Christ follower, our old ways, our old lives, our old thought processes, our old things that we once participated in... They become a thing of the past. And I told him that if he is going to be a Christ follower, he's got to get clean. He's got to give up the drugs, and he's got to begin to pursue after Christ. I said, I asked him, do you have any children? And he told me that he had children. I said, do you have any grandchildren? He said, yeah. I said, have you ever met them? And he said, no. And I said, if you ever want to meet your grandchildren, then I'll guarantee your daughter wants to make sure that you get clean first. Now, I share with him Matthew five forty eight, where where it talks about in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And began to share with him that all of us needs to pursue perfection. All of us need to pursue holiness in our lives. Lawrence didn't become a Christian on, on Wednesday. But he certainly had the gospel of Jesus Christ planted in his life. And I only pray that he will get his life right with Jesus. Every single person that we come in contact with on a daily basis must make a decision as to what they are going to do with Jesus. They are either going to be a Christ follower or they're going to be a Christ denier. Everyone must come to the point of decision. Notice our third subpoint here, the accusation of the Pharisees. In Matthew 934, we read, But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the Prince of Demons. These Pharisees could not deny the miracles of Jesus. Just think about it. As we have walked through these miracles together, they had witnessed Jesus heal the mute. They had witnessed Jesus heal the blind. They had witnessed Jesus exercise demons and cleanse the leper and heal the sick and perform countless other miracles. They could not deny the supernatural works that Jesus was doing. They could not deny the works, but they could deny the source of power by which Jesus healed. And that's exactly what they did. They accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan. Because they cannot deny the supernatural works of Jesus and to try to slow down Jesus and his public ministry. They accused Jesus of performing healing healings through demonic power. We know that is not true. We know that Satan will try and cause confusion within the hearts of men to get men to believe the opposite of the truth. That's what Satan has been doing since the beginning of time. He began in the garden by confusing Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden tree. And since that very moment, every single one of us in this room, um, Satan has been trying to confuse us, to try to get us to believe something that is not true. True, And that is what the Pharisees tried to do. They tried to confuse the people that were left in awe by making the accusation that Jesus was actually performing these miracles as a result of a demon that he had in him. So he's exercising demons by the very demon that he had in him is basically what the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of. Jesus healed all of these people. And knew what every single one of these people needed because he created each and every one of them. Just like Jesus knew what every single man, woman, and child, and student needed during the the, 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 the writing of God's holy word. He knows exactly what every single one of us in this room needs. Today, Not only does he know what we need, he knows what every single person outside of the doors of this church need. First, they need Jesus. Second, they need someone to go to them and to preach the good news of salvation amongst those that they come in contact with. Folks, Jesus is Lord. And with Jesus, nothing is impossible. As we have witnessed in God's word, there is absolutely nothing that is impossible with him. Now this morning, I don't know what decision you need to make. You may be here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were to take your final breath on this side of eternity, do you know for absolute certainty where you will spend eternity? Has Jesus saved you as a result of you asking him to forgive you of your sins? Have you declared that Jesus is Lord and King of your life? If you have not done that, then this morning I invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. If you are here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and the Lord is leading you to become a part of this fellowship, we invite you to come this morning to do that very thing. I'm going to pray, and at the conclusion of this prayer, I'm going to invite everybody to stand. If there's a decision you need to make, I invite you to come. Let's stand together and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, thanking you for being the God of the impossible. Father, you are the author and perfecter of all things. The author and perfector of our lives, the author and perfector of our faith, you are the author and perfector of everything, and we thank you for that this morning. Lord Jesus, I know in a room this size that it is very possible that there may be someone here this morning that is not a Christ follower. If they were to take their final breath this morning, they do not know where they would spend eternity. And Father, I pray that there will not be a single person that leaves this place this morning that does not know with absolute certainty where they will spend eternity. So this morning, during this invitation, Lord, I pray that you will get a hold of them and draw them unto yourself. Father, if there's some here this morning that need to come and join this faith family, Lord, we invite them to come. Lord, just move now during our time of invitation. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you are here this morning and you need to come to Christ, become a Christ follower, you don't know for certain if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to come. If you need to come and join this fellowship, you come. You come now during this time of invitation. You come.